Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Comedian and performer Ruby Wax joined us a couple of weeks back at the How To Change Your Life Festival for a conversation about her latest book, I'm Not As Well As I Thought I Was. It's a funny but also deeply honest and profound account of her mental health struggles. Here's Ruby's conversation with Hannah McInnes, complete with much teasing of the other festival guest speakers. Um, have you enjoyed the day? Because you've been here a while. I've been listening and now I'm going to listen what I don't know. So I'm really sorry. Also, I've just gotten off a plane, so I won't be speaking English. It'll be completely made up. Probably similar to tongues. But if you want to ask about microbiome, you come to the wrong place. <laughs> I think okay. it's a myth. Okay. Oh, right. Okay, no. <laughs> I'm going to move swiftly on because we might not and debunk everything we've heard for the last hour. Okay, I'm not as well as I thought I was. And I'm, I'm intrigued by the title because, as I said, you've been doing a, a, a lot in, in, in mental health and talking a lot about mental health, very honestly about your own. So just tell me about that title, I'm not as well as I thought I was. How well did you... Well, I you thought were? it was a good title. So I had to write a book based on that. I, I, I wrote the book Hopeful, with hope in my heart, because after COVID, I was thinking, um, you, you know, my life, it was sort of boring. I mean, same old, same old. And, I, you know, I thought I can't keep this mindset. And I didn't realize I could change it with kimchi at that point. <laughs> but um, if I had known, there wouldn't be a book. Yep, that's a, that's a cure for mental illness. Um, oh, sorry, is he still here? <laughs> is he gone? Okay. Uh, yes, so uh, I, I wrote a book about uh, changing my... I hardly remember this book, but... Um, uh, you started it off in a mental... No, no, I didn't. You've ruined no, no. it. No, 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 sorry. No, I didn't. You, I started you... off thinking I need to find this word that we you know, it's so elusive, what meaning is. I don't yes. know what meaning is. But, you know, to give me some self-respect or not feel such a cliche and hating myself and the usual blah, blah. You know, I, I've heard my lines before they've come out of my mouth, so I bore myself rigid. Even now, I could just pass out with embarrassment. But still, you're listening but and that's all that counts. So I, I, I set myself up all these uh, projects where I would maybe find meaning or purpose or whatever these things mean. So I just threw it out. I, I was going to do what they did in Dice Man, which was a big hit in the 50s or something, where you roll dice and you just pick five possibilities and then you have to go for it. But then I read it was a flop, so I thought, don't write that book. Um, so I, I chose going on a 30-day silent retreat, We're living in a Christian monastery, maybe getting somebody out of Afghanistan, swimming with um, whales, you know, that would be bring, well, would give me a little humility, which is something I could choose. Uh, anyway, so I set myself up with all these things, but just to jump to the end, and that was a really boring book. Funny, but boring. But then, all these things added up to my um, being uh, committed to a mental institution. <laughs> so I didn't find meaning, but I did find madness. Uh, and so it made for a better book. I mean, I'm not, I'm being flippant. It was a horrible thing, but Every time I did one of these life-changing things, it was life-changing. I mean, you can't go on a 30-day silent retreat. It's like doing Iron Man. Eventually, you're going to get a peck. Something did happen, but then I fucked it up myself. I gazumped it myself. I came back 
I was a pure being. You know, I would study an ant for hours and I was filled with love for rocks and trees. But um, I got back and I got greedy again. And the day after I come back from a silent retreat, they offered me a lot of money to do an ad for potato crisps. I grabbed it like this. And the next thing, out of silence, not moving my mouth, I'm going, mm, I can't wait to hear the scrummy crunch, right? I hoard it. So I got, you know, every time I did something life-changing, it was my life that kind of gazumpted it. But, but it's really hard not for that, for that not to happen, because you go on a 30-day silent retreat, you're surrounded by all these people who are doing the same thing as you. The setup is absolutely made for that. And you go to, to listen to the whales, as you say. But when you come back, I think you said in, in that scenario, the happiness lasted just about as long as the plane journey. But it's quite hard for anyone to live those sorts of a life when they get back home. Those experiences are always fleeting, aren't they? The retreat style experience. Well, I mean, I, I got my degree in mindfulness. He didn't go to Oxford, but I did. Um, but he's got the robes, so I guess there's some, we're balanced. I actually asked Tupton to stay at my house for the last five years when he isn't touring the world, and I said to him, I chose him because he managed, he, he matched my sofa. So that's why, that's why he's there, God bless him. A throw cushion, that's... No, I love him. But um, I, I do know that it does change your mind. Neuroplasticity does work. You can't just do a month and walk off. I mean, I do practice it every day. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, even though I have mental illness, that's really got nothing to do with practicing mindfulness. It's a disease. It's not going to keep away things like Alzheimer's. And so depression is another mental disease. So, it, you know, when you're in the doldrums, you have to give up, you know, people say, oh, you should jog or, you know, perk up. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Or um, eat grapefruits. You're, you're in a disease, you know, you're in the clutches of something that's like Satan. If he had Tourette's, that's what it would sound like. And then when you come back out, then I go back to the gym and do mindfulness. So things like that do work. It's just that I was, I was moving too fast. I was, there's part of my life that thank God I do mindfulness because I would be a shipwreck without doing it. So, but everything did change. I mean, if you try to get somebody out of Afghanistan, you know, I mean, I did it to kind of juice up that compassion, uh, that, you know, thing. And yes, I, I mean, it sounds selfish, that's why I did it, but you know, those refugees don't care what your motive is, you just showed up. So everything had a good, point to it. But I really, now thinking back on it, I wanted to do psilocybin. Is that man still here? <laughs> no, David Nutt. I, I was going to, talking about meaningful journeys, you know, nothing is more boring than hearing somebody who's taken psilocybin. Yeah, yeah, your mother was a jaguar, get over it. But I really did want to include it. So I came off of my medication six months earlier so that I could do it. Thank God, it I, thank God I didn't do it because oh. Uh, when I got to the airport, because you have to do it in Holland, I interviewed every uh, therapist because I wanted them to accompany me. And um, I got, I had COVID, so I couldn't get on the plane. But that's why I think helped me get into a mental institution. <laughs> so, uh, but I didn't realize that at the time. Of course, and that's when you went to the Wales instead. Well, you? I got COVID. My husband, Ed, got prostate cancer. I, I, uh, I, you know, I should have been compassionate. I mean, I was compassionate because I always say, you know, this, if it wasn't for him, I, I did marry him for length. That's true because he's very tall and 
I come from generations of short Polish people. Also, he's a nice guy. So I, um, I had to delay some of my journeys because we had to get news from the doctor whether it spread, and I did shit myself. But people are, you know, on the way to the doctor, you'd think I'd be really nice, and i go, Ed, Ed, you missed three parking spaces. What's wrong with you? Which he loves. And then we got in, it didn't spread. They said he couldn't have surgery for two weeks, so typical me, I said, well, it's a good thing, Ed, because I never canceled my next journey, which is tomorrow. Do you want to come? And we went swimming with whales. You are... You he thanked me in the end, and he's, oh, he's fine. And so am I. So that's fine. Thank you. I mean, you say that in the three, three car parking spaces and things, but you are very touching about Ed in the book and say that you, you could not live without him and you hope he's reading these pages because it's the first time you've ever said that. I never say it to him. I have to write it in a book and hope he picks it up. Uh, I found that very moving. You were talking uh, just a moment ago about this sort of on-the-move thing and if you didn't have anything to keep you back, you would just be permanently... I can't remember the phrase that you used, but um, that's a big part of what you try and understand um, in the clinic, isn't it? This idea that you have to be always on the move. You say you can't be in your own home, even. Well, I'm, <clears throat> a lot of this was uh, a revelation. So as I'm writing it, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a fiction writer. Yeah. It really is happening. Yeah. So by the end of the book, I realized I wasn't running toward, I was running away. Mm. I didn't realize something was really wrong because um, I'd always, made my family into comedy fodder, and it was because, and it sounds like I'm name dropping, but it's okay if they're dead, Alan Rickman, um, who was my mentor and my brother and my husband and everything. He, uh, when I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which God knows how I got into, because I was crap at acting, but I knew how to play insane. <laughs> they didn't know I was playing. Um, <laughs> And I was playing a leaf or a, an ashtray with Juliet Stevenson, who got famous. Uh, Brickman said, why don't you um, write comedy because that's how you speak. So I started making jokes about my family just to make him laugh because if you make Alan Rickman laugh, you've won an Oscar, you know, deadly straight. But if I tell stories about my parents, I'd make him weep. So um, I use them as comedy, right? I wouldn't even have to edit it. And so I missed a whole, um, I missed what really happened. And while I'm in the uh, mental clinic, they gave me two things. One was RTMS, which is repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. And it's like ECT, but they don't, you don't forget, you know, what planet of origin you came from. It uses magnets instead of electricity, which stimulates the neurons to kick in again. They're, nobody knows why it works, okay? And it works on 60% of the people who use it. So it worked for you. It worked for me, but also I had a, a EMDR, <laughs> just one of these letters, um, therapist, and I never bought that either. Again, they don't know how it works, but you know, you use the fingers go back and forth like a hypnotist does in Vegas before they turn you into a chicken. So I said, well, I'll, I'll take her, because I was there anyway. And gradually, gradually, my psychiatrist, who was working with me, I recorded her, so you really do hear her voice. And each session, which is interwoven throughout the book, she takes me further and further down and says, do not be funny. And I said, I can't, that's my only defense. So she keeps stopping me, but I am, you know, I can't help it. But she takes me further and further down, and then by the end of the book, I realize it wasn't a joke, and it wasn't my imagination, because your parents always think, are you, my parents would say, that's insane, are you making that up? You're a sad sack. 
So I thought I made it up, but I was actually locked in my house when I was a kid, because I don't remember seeing night outside. And I remember a lot of time spent with my dog, uh, staring out our living room window, envying the kind of people who the normal Americans have in their barbecues. And he wanted out because he wanted to obviously hump some leg, but we both were locked in. I guess he went out sometime. But eventually when I was 18, I ran away. But before that, I never went on a date. I, I, they let me go to school and certain chosen people, but I never left that house. So it took her to make me go, oh my God. So it, in a way, all these journeys, all this running away was because, and I, to this day, I cannot be in any place called home. So I'm really at home in a Christian monastery where they, you know, there was a nun who I, I always pick a mother figure, you know, who looked like Mrs. Doubtfire, and I loved her. And then when I'm in a mental institution, that's my happy place. So if I'm locked in and I know my parents can't get in the room, then I settle, but not in a house house, you know, with mom and dad. You know, she didn't come in going, hi, hon, would you like some chocolate chip cookies? They were real tormentors. But I made it funny, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, that was your defense mechanism. As, as you say, the... Um, Am I getting too heavy? Oh, okay. No, we're at the How to Change Your Life conference. We can't oh, okay. be too heavy. Well, that's why it's called that. <laughs> but the... Um, well, you call her shrink in your conversations, and she encourages you to think of it as trauma, which you push back on at the yeah, beginning. I think it's an Oprah word, trauma. But what have you learned about it now, and how has it helped you? experiencing it as trauma, calling it trauma? Well, as I explained, trauma is, oh, what, what did they say? I forgot my book. But it's, um, something's, you know, locked. It's locked so you can't access it. So then, and, and because of Oxford, you know, the, the neurons are so shocked that they kind of lock. So you're on a loop tape. You can't, you can't permeate the defense. Um, so, uh, what was the question again? Well, I mean, what you learned from oh, calling it trauma. trauma. I suppose, did, did, did these conversations, um, accepting it as trauma... By the end, I did say, yeah, I have the T word, and I would probably get on Oprah now. But, it, you know, I don't like buzzwords. I don't like, you know, being woke. I mean, you, I am woke, so I, I don't have... Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, habits that we have, like, that you think, well, this only... You only started thinking this last week because you saw it on television, you know, or these habits become ingrained, and so our culture makes us more and more shallow. So I didn't want to say, yes, I've joined that. My new tribe is traumatized. I just didn't think I was. You know, if you've had a career and you have kids and it looks relatively normal, where's the trauma? Well, I'm the poster girl now. So, you know, I admit that that was serious trauma. And now it's okay because I'm conscious of it. I'm still fucked up, but I'm conscious of it. You know, I understand why I can't be at home. Whereas before I thought, but this is such bliss. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now, in hardback, ebook and audio. And I mean another word that you use very openly and honestly is is depression. You've you've used it while we were sitting on the stage. I'm just wondering 
how easy or not so easy you found it to be so honest about that, about it, about it coming for you. Well, you know, in, that's how you describe it in the monastery and why it's important to talk about it. Do you think maybe we don't have the language to talk about depression yet? Well, we, we think it's sadness, and I, you know, I don't do shows about it, but my people know what I'm talking about. It's not sadness; it's death. People don't commit suicide because they have a liver infection. It's death, and I've had, I sometimes have the audience ask questions after my shows, not this one. Oh, I'm not, I'll go back to that. Jump, 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 and you see why I was in an institution. So um, there is a difference between um, being frazzled, which is just, which is a neurobiological word, meaning stress about stress, which is a new contemporary illness, like the shame of being stressed. Nobody else is stressed. Why isn't he calling me? This questioning, trying to get to the heart of where our, where our psyche is, where our problem is. Whereas the Buddhists have, have it right. There is no... He's meditating. He's not even listening. <laughs> Tukten, come with it. Get in the now. He's we, never in the now. You can't meditate now. You're meditating somewhere. <laughs> feeling my breath, feeling my breath, missing exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I was meditating too, sorry. Um, it's because I have jet lag, so just remind me what was the last you, you word. Were just, you were talking about the language of depression and talking about it, and, oh, yeah. and it not being About sadness. sadness. It's, yeah. it's, it, you know, it's like, the, it's like being possessed by the devil. As a matter of fact, when I was in the monastery, I thought maybe Mrs. Doubtfire slipped me a, um, you know, a date rape drug, because whoever you are starts to melt away, but it's so slow that you think, oh my God, this is the new me. And so you start um, imitating who, what you used to be like, which is, a big, for me, a big smile and everything's fine. It's actually a grotesque face. It's like a gurn, but nobody ever notices because people don't really look at you. And you're dripping in sweat thinking, what would Ruby have said? Well, Ruby's gone. All um, agency of who you are is gone. So you've got no nothing to grab onto. It's free fall. So it really, that's why it's not suicidal, but you think, please could a car just hit me because I feel nothing. So you're sort of floating and nothing matters. It doesn't matter where you have a manicure or fall off a cliff, eeny meeny. So people do not understand that depression is the worst. I've had, as I said in the audience, people stand up and sometimes say, I have cancer, I've had cancer, and I had depression, and I always say, which is worse? And depression always wins, because you don't wear a scarf when you have depression. You get no pity and good luck holding on to your job. You said in the book that you had, I think, depression the size of South America um, when you stopped working at the BBC. Yeah. Was that where it started? I had depression as a kid, but they didn't have a name for it. I mean, my mother was used to, you know, howl to the winds and the police would come and go, your mom's having uh, menopause. <laughs> is she gone? No. <laughs> and I said, the woman is 87 years old. How long are you going to keep this up? But she would really howl like an animal and clean the ceiling with, you know, with her Q-tips on her fingertips. She was nuts. This had nothing to do with menopause. So, uh, what, I keep forgetting no, what it I'm was saying. there when you were younger, but, but you talk about... It was always there. I mean, it's, they don't know if it's nature or nurture, but you certainly don't catch it from something that happened. You may be traumatized. If you're a comedian, you probably have a hefty case of narcissism. But depression, is in, it's in the DNA. And then it gets exasperated by 
an incident or continual incidents. If you don't have the gene, even if your parents are gaga, you won't get it. You just won't get it. So I was, I got both. I got the double whammy. So depression is something, I'm sorry, it isn't like, it's, to me it's being pregnant or not pregnant. It is a thing. And it's insulting when people go, oh, pull out of it. And I just say, it's just like Alzheimer's. It's a disease of the brain. And you wouldn't say to them, oh, come on, you're faking it. Where's, where'd you park the car? You know, you wouldn't, so get off my back if I have depression. And if your friends don't believe you, walk away. Do you think we're getting better as a society? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Because you lose a hundred, more than a hundred billion every year in work, in absenteeism. So the economy suffers. Yeah. But when you talk about your parents and it's clear that um, through working with your shrink, as you call her, the whole way through, you understood how much this is to do with them. But you also say your urge to flee is in your DNA because of what happened to them, because of the history of your, your family. Does that give you any sort of empathy for, for why they might have been like they Oh, were? I know. I mean, I feel sorry for them, but I didn't know them as kids. You know, I knew the result. If I knew them as kids, probably my mother was this kind of Aryan beauty, you know, when she left Austria, the Nazis stood up so she could lie down. I mean, please, did they Because she was blonde and blue-eyed. She was a beauty. She wouldn't have been friends with me. She was very popular. She spoke eight languages. I still would have been the nerd I was in high school. But later on, I would have kicked her in, <laughs> you know. I became successful five minutes, much later in life. You say that... But again, that's neuroplasticity again. You know, you can stay in the habit of being the, the, the victim, the loser, the whatever, which is what I was. But then uh, show business really manipulates you or you, you allow it to, to believe you're quite interesting. But you're not. <laughs> you're just in a limelight, sometimes by accident, and you start to believe your own myth. And it's like taking a drug. And when that drug is removed, it's like coming off of heroin. Suddenly, you know, when fame was taken from my away, I used to get on the tube and I'd say, do you know who I am? And they'd say, yeah, you're an asshole. Go pay for your ticket like everybody else. <laughs> and then eventually you're normal again and it's fine. <laughs> I mean, that's a really interesting part of the book for so many reasons when you talk about television. You say attention, in fact, you say at, at Spirit Rock, um, attention is the air I breathe, which is why I entered the world of, of show business. And you're so honest about this impact. It has sort of infantilizing you. Um, Would you like a lovely cup of tea and a biggie? <laughs> oh, you know, they always say that when you're, you know, 58 years old. Would you like a cup of tea? And I go, mm-hmm. And also, would you change my nappy? You know, they, they do. And so when people are thrown out of show business, which they inevitably are, because they do that horrible thing called aging, um, you're still demanding. And the letdown, you know, and is just, you know, if you never had it, you wouldn't crave it. Anyway, I got better, then I went to Oxford because I was so interested in how the brain worked. And then that happened, you know, then what you're curious about, those neurons start to grow. And it's a good age fighter, is the curiosity. I mean, boy, did I get interested in that. Yeah, I mean, in the television chapter, you, you sort of, you, you talk about um, this exhausting performing that you always felt you had to do. And I suppose now, do you feel relieved? Do you feel like you don't have to do that anymore? You say you always had to be performing and it was exhausting and people expected a certain persona of you and that must have contributed hugely. Uh, no, to not to depression, don't go not there. Not to depression, no. yeah. 
I can't really remember, but, um, you know, I was 20, and that tastes really good at 20. Your body can take it, and at 30 it can take it, but turn 50 and still crave it. I think that's why a lot of, I'm, just might be me, comedians have heart attacks when they turn a certain age. It's because their body's clinging on to 20, and yet their faces don't move in that way, and it becomes tragic. I mean, I saw, it doesn't matter, Tommy Cooper wearing some hat, and he wouldn't shut up. He went on for four hours. Well, you know, it was just pretending to be young. The only one that I ever saw do it was uh, George Carlin and Lenny Bruce. You know, they, they, they got old with it, but women especially hold on to pretending to be, you know, at a certain point. You see them at 50 talking about how hard it is to get a date. So it's hard to be smart and funny. But anyway, luckily I, I got my degrees. He's sleeping now. Um, I got my degree so I could combine science with comedy. Yeah, and because now Louis Theroux can't take that from me. <laughs> well, you say, <laughs> well, let's maybe talk about Louis Theroux because I also love that part of the book. But you say exactly that looking back, if you hadn't left those, that, that career, that particular part of your career behind, you never would have done the degree, you never would have done so much. So with hindsight, I can't remember, I think you say yeah. in the, in the, the audio book is also brilliant. I, I very much enjoyed listening to that. But with hindsight, you, you can say that you got a lot from your life because of leaving. C can I ask about one thing? And you might, it might be so distant or you might want to forget it, but it just feels very relevant now. And um, I recently read the book with the kind of background of who might be coming back to be the president of the... United States of America, who obviously was one of your, you said, your biggest car crash uh, interview. I mean, can you explain that moment? Because it's sort of extraordinary. I hadn't quite remembered your encounter with him. It's revolting. You could Google it. Just not now, but it's a car crash. I mean, he, you know, I should have known men like that hate me because I don't, if I had come, if I was a sexual animal, he would have responded because that's the ego, but he couldn't figure me out, and he was my father. He was terrorizing, so I became the idiot child. You know, it, people, when they see you a certain light, you become that, and the more I became an idiot, he became the dictator. It was grotesque. I mean, I was seriously shaken after that one, and I started asking moronic questions, because that's how my dad treated me. You know, when your saliva goes, and now. So anyway, who would you date if you were, I mean, just, Horrific, and then he said, "Shut her up." I went and land the plane. She's a, she's um, obnoxious, and so he landed the plane. We were at thirty-three thousand feet. That's where the interview took place in his private jet with his gold bidet. Uh, not nuts at all. And my makeup artist had to do it. He had demanded his makeup, and he had one strand of hair, and she just whirled it around like a Mr. Whippy, <laughs> and then powdered him down, and uh, I mean, he landed the plane. But again, adversity. You is the you know the mother load of reinvention. So we had to find him again, and we went through the asshole of America. You know, we went through Arizona, um, Arkansas. We went through uh, places where it was like a poor man's Vegas, where they sh they had a rifle range and shot pictures of you know Saddam Hussein, and everybody was in one town, Branson, Arkansas. Check it out. The whole town dressed like it was in the fifties. No people of color. A Siamese twins running the toffee shop. I mean, when America's gross, it's gross. So we went through all of that in kind of a Disneyland, but, for, you know, for people from 
the they're not they're like farm animals god bless them but not the smartest end of america and finally i found donald in um, nebraska where he was judging a beauty contest yeah not sleeping with the you know and um there was a more idiotic americans all trying to get his autograph because they were in the millionaires club which meant they had spent a million right screwed out of a million somehow they must have uh, mortgaged their houses and now they're waving him and kissing him and it's his casino that ripped him off blind you know you think what signing an autograph and him just ruling it so um uh he said at the end to john McEnroe, who was my next guest he said if i ever see her again i'll kill her because he knew that i had screwed him when we finally edited it <laughs> And I met Melania, I made a joke. She was adorable, but I was standing next to her and I could hear the ocean. <laughs> it was the worst interview. People like OJ and Imelda Marcos were a joy. Oh, it's such a, it's a, you, the reason that you actually reminisce in that way is because of Louis Theroux. Essentially, because he, you, you rerun those interviews because he petitions the BBC. Well, he was adore. You know, I thought he was he was my nemesis. That um, he took over what I was doing, and so I wouldn't allow my children to say the, the word Louis through. And then I was doing an interview with him because I was pushing the book, and I just said, "Listen, let's be real here. Here's what you." I projected on you it wasn't you at all and so it became was a three-hour interview and he was really listening and really curious and would say what he saw in me and I said what I saw in him and so see we have we come with these we project who we think people are on them and then we treat them that way thus we have wars but you know suddenly his image melted and I realized I put a whole bunch of my inner fears on this one human being who's just a human being so it was sweet and in the end he said you've got to put your shows back on I said this was not an audition but it was nice of him to do and then I got fired again <laughs> But it's okay, I'm not bitter. Actually, that, that's another part of the book that really, um, I think, is incredibly interesting. When you're at Spirit Rock, you're just talking about essentially not that's judging. That's where the retreat went on. Not uh, judging The meditation people, went on, yeah. And not making assumptions, as you've just said, because some, people are very, are very different in reality, i.e. Louis Theroux. And that's a, something you learn through these 30 silent days of meditation, and you make all these oh, yeah, judgments about your fellow meditees? Meditatees? Retreatees. Retreaties. I don't know what you call it, but yeah, you realize when you start speaking again after 30 days, you've had fantasies. Like I kept thinking this blonde guy who was sitting next to me, was in his 30s, was staring at me when I wasn't looking, and then he'd look away and I thought he's in love with me. Insane. And um, when we finally could speak, I went up to him and I said, did you realize I was sitting next to you? And he said, no, but I heard snoring. <laughs> And you know, you got, you got everybody wrong and you think that's what I do in real life. You know, it's like I'm a casting agent for reality. You treat, you decide who they are. Such quick assumptions. So um, yeah, there are things when you're quiet for a long time that you start, you do get revelations. And probably similar to when you're on psilocybin, I'm, I haven't taken it, but I'm sure it's the same thing where you get the overview and you start to see yourself as ridiculous, but loving yourself at the same time. I guess that's mindfulness, is you see your inner, inner life, but you forgive yourself. And um, it really, the last day I thought, oh, I'm, in the pre I'm in the now, I have to call Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> 
That's exactly what, what you do. You, what you've just said um, seems to articulate it perfectly, that you kind of love the ridiculousness of, of, yeah. of who you are. You do that all the way through the book. You sort of um, judge yourself, but, but very, very self-aware. And at that moment at Spirit Rock, you talk about how you were sort of <laughs> performing, even though everybody was deep in their meditation you were sort of thinking they were bowing to you. But oh, yeah, I could, The reflection yeah. of that is very honest, I think. Well, I could see the attention-seeking thing, you know, where I volunteered. Oh, first of all, you have to do volunteer work. And I ended up with this, um, you know, so I volunteered for dishwashing, and there was an old guy and a really young girl, and she said, since you two are elders, <laughs> you know, and one of the rules was no killing, no sex, and no intoxication, so it's a good thing they said no killing, because she would have been on my list. And then, you know, when we did the dishes, she was showing us how evolved she was. So she'd wash the dishes in that Thich Nhat Hanh very slowly. So just to fuck with her, I went even slower. <laughs> and it was after midnight when we finished. The old guy was passed out on the floor. So you could see the competition, you know, slow, slow. And I said, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about mindful dishwashing. I knew what she was doing. And then another time, you could volunteer to lead the um, meditation group. And so, um, you know, you do the gong in and the gong, and so much gonging, it's like my cervix was vibrating. <laughs> Gongs, boo. So I volunteered and I got on stage. You sat in a throne and all the young boys, because it was mostly 20 year olds, were sitting around me in their little swami underpants, you know, and their buns on their head. And they were all looking at me. And um, I banged in and I realized I did that so that I could sit in the center of the room and have everybody looking at me, kind of like how we are now. Um, and that was, and then um, I thought when they were all silent, they had their, they weren't laughing. So I had this urge to do some comedy, and I really, or you know, to show them I wasn't just a person who gongs. I was quite talented. <laughs> and all this goes through your brain. You know what I mean? You're watching yourself, but part of you is going. With, you know, it, it's not criticizing, and that's what frazzled means. You know, to observe yourself and then whip yourself. So I took away the whip, and I was just watching and kind of amused how I, you know, as the dishwasher, I left my dishwashing area and started taking personal plates from people, like a valet service, and they bowed to me, and I realized, you just did that, Ruby, so people would bow to you. You know, because you're nothing. In, th in around 70 people who aren't speaking, you're nothing and see how you deal with that or see how you deal there's no distraction in you you know I, we live in distraction and then you're dead so i would i'd realize you know i had to shop so every day i'd pick a stone that i'd like like i was browsing in a you know in selfridges and i buy the stone this is going on in my mind and then i take it back to my room and then i look at the stone most of the night and think no i don't like that one so i go back and return it to get another stone so you're so, you see how embedded you are. A, for attention, B, for this kind of shopping. Then you reach the phone because you keep hearing ringing, but there isn't, you know, so everything is taken from you. And then you're with you, and, that's, and then you have to forgive yourself because that's all you've got. I mean, you talk about the, um, yes, you say everybody bows after the session, and actually, of course, that's what they do, and you think they're bowing to well, you. Well, I knew they were bowing to the Buddhas behind me, but I took it as a personal bow, and I bowed <laughs> like I was doing a one-woman show, and then um, they filed out, and I sat in the chair thinking maybe somebody will ask for my autograph. 
And I thought, aren't I an asshole? You know, but I became at one with that. Um, you said uh, the, the, uh, does the dishwashing young girl have a name? I, I don't think she does. No, no, I gave her no name. No name. Um, but she, she made you feel like, uh, as, you, as you feel a, a lot in the book, and many of us can relate to it, we, 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 uh, you talked about it earlier in, in your talk, ageing um, is something that we're not very good at accepting in yes, our society. You must, you must know about that, yes. being your age. <laughs> I, don't like getting, I don't like getting old, but yes. And you say, I hated myself for being old and inept. I'm not happy about aging. I expect very few people are. I'm not one of them, and it's worse for me. And I don't want to give a spoiler, but I think, you know, we're going to either read the book or we're going to read it anyway, because the, the sort of epiphany or something that really helps you is to do with aging and the book you find in, in the mental institution. I wonder if you could, because that was, I think, helpful for everyone of, of all ages, this... Um, his name Richard Rohr. Yes, Richard Rohr. Oh, when I falling was, yeah. upward, Fall, falling awake. Oh, falling awake. Yeah, falling upward, falling upwards, falling. You were Both. right. <laughs> well, I'm old and demented. No, I'm only because I've only got it written here from your Sorry. book. Yeah, um, but that's really interesting. In the in institute, well, we might write the next. The monk who's now on the telephone, because um, <laughs> it's. We might write a book about aging, yeah, because I find it interesting of how we, where do we, where are we in the scale, and how long, do, you know, people holding on to the 20s when it's, you know, time is moving on. We have no way of knowing what happens next. What happens, there is no instruction manual, so I found that interesting too. You want to say, here's your, here's your Fitbit, you're 50, babe, your hormones are gone, get real, you know. Just how do we behave? How do you behave at 60 or 70? We don't know. Not behave, but what makes you what you are, because this is giving you the information, and we block that one out. So anyway, uh, yeah, there was one book in the library in the mental institution that was called Falling Upward. Uh, you were right. And uh, it was by Richard Rohr, and he was magnificent. Um, and also he wrote with Scott Peck, which was a, a road less traveled. But the way, I forgot how he said it, I don't want to take words out of his mouth. It was magnificent. It was about what happens in the first half of your life and what happens in the second. And the way he wrote it was magnificent. It was, um, you know, you need the ego, you need the turbo, you need all that to establish an identity. And then the second half of your life, you start dismembering it. You know, and then there's real, um, well, you know, wisdom, if you play it right. You know, that things come and go. It's exactly what mindfulness is about, you know, adversity and pain and loss and whatever. But it just, you, you've widened your repertoire so it passes through rather than taking it so personally. It was magnificent and getting real pleasure out of now give it back. Just give it back. I know if I say it, it sounds cliche, but the way he said it was magnificent. So, of course, that reduced the fear of where I was, too, because I was starting to deconstruct myself. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I mean, I've actually given away some of my shoes. Yeah, thank you. Is that the deconstruction I did process? that yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, letting it go, letting it go. How far can you let it go? Because that's peace. He's yawning. <laughs> Um, that, that, you, you've made it very clear that it's very important not to trivialize depression, not to put depression in any of the same boxes as sadness, not to imagine that it can be cured by kimchi or anything else. Um, I'm sure it can. 
I'm sure those can help, but I still think um, you know your mindset is is built before your 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 frontal cortex is. You know you haven't got a mind, uh, and and this is these building blocks are all going on. I, I'm sure you can crack it, but I don't know many people who've cracked a mental disorder, a mental disease without the help of drugs. And that's what I was going to ask in terms of what you think most helped you. We've spoken about falling upward, which was was a really profound moment, yeah. um, and the different sorts of treatment that you went through. Do you feel like it was a combination of those that, that helped? Because you well, say I, that you yeah. were, it was much quicker for you than other people. This it was three weeks. Yeah. And the day I went in, I was committed in, um, exactly to the uh, year later, same day, my book was published. So it was quick. But um, I, we never know. It's a mystery. How do you go in? How do you go out? How do you know that it's not a, um, another conceit? How do you know? Because your mind is gone. Where does it go? I don't know. It's a mystery. Uh, so I can't tell what, maybe it was the RTMS, though they say it has 60% chance. Because the other people in my, in my um, institution, it didn't work for them. They were still glassy-eyed and going in circles. Oh, there was one woman, and I talk about the inmates. Miss, I forgot, Lady Haversham, you know, who wore the torn shredded dress and her lips up here going, I love, there's nothing like being in a mental institution. She goes, oh, you know, it's just awful. It's just awful. Foxes are coming into my kitchen and they're eating my frozen prawns. So I put vegan food out for them. But they keep coming into my kitchen and eating the frozen prawns. And Freddy's going to Eden. I'm having a party. I mean, you gotta love these people. Where do you get that in real life? So I had to leave because I got better and a bit of me was kind of devastated to go back into real life. I never see those people. Yeah, you, you say, you, say you, you had to leave and you are very um, attached to the place by the end. At the beginning, not. Yeah. Um, and I think Ed has to bring you a lot of things to make you feel more at home. But at the end, you don't want to leave. And this feeling of... of well, it was home. Yeah. Institutions are a home but because have, there's nice mothers. So have you, have you found any sanctuary yet in, in your own home? Because you're working through this with um, your psychotherapist this idea of always fleeing, always being No, but busy. I've, I did, I, I've been away in, Cape, in yeah. South Africa till today, but um, I built a little room in my house. I created a, which was a study, so the walls are kind of here, and then the door is there. So I've made my own, um, in, like, institution stroke, um, monastery stroke, you know, the, the smallness, so I'm safe. Because my parents used to jump in when I was in bed and do, do weird things. So what did I, they do? Well, you know, it was like, did you ever see the film Mommy Dearest? Oh, that was about how insane Joan Crawford was. And she'd go through the kids' drawers going, no more wire hangers. You know, my mom would flip out all my underpants and then put them, I was 18 by then, put them all in order of my age. You know, nuts things. And then my father would come in and go, you should be in an institute. It was onslaught, onslaught. I can't analyze what their problem was. Um, but maybe they were jealous because they were in war-torn Austria and I was living in, you know, free America. So there was a real jealousy that they lost their youth and I had it. So they thought, let's destroy this one. So they brought the war into our kitchen in Evanston. And I was used, I was sort of piggy in the middle. I forgive them now, but you know, I could have been a player. <laughs> 
No, you know what I mean? I would have gone into, I would have been able to go to high school and think, but you know, when you're so, it's like a battlefield and all you do is you're protecting yourself. So I'm too vigilant. You know, the guns are cocked, so you're really not living life. I'm not, you know, you could have depression and your parents were adorable too. Because if you've got the gene, you've got the gene. Um, you, you said you've just been to Cape Town and, and in the latter half of the book, you go on a, a very different type. I, th I think that's what I'm getting at, whether you found a way of escaping, going on these trips, these extraordinary trips, but not as a flea, not as an escape yeah. from something, but just to embrace, to embrace it. There are these trips that you go on at the end of the book that are, are such a different variety of escape because you're there purely to absorb it, not to just keep busy in the sort of... No, now I'm do, like I'm going to uh, the book festival in Cartagena. I mean, ah, oh, that'll kill you. I had to obvious. write a book in Spanish to get there, but God damn it, I did. Um, and then, you know, I have, I'm going through what I find curious, because I'm curious. So I'm not fleeing the house because I'm fleeing the house, but who doesn't want to see this? You know, and I'm, the reason I can do it is because I was on television, you know, and I'm not being cocky. Not everybody can do it, but, you know, I could do it. So take advantage. Um, so I am doing, I, I try to line up doing interesting things. Yeah, I mean, can you tell us briefly about Fintorn? Because you Fintorn. Fintorn, sorry. Yeah, you got that uh, wrong. That, look, is that somewhere that we, <laughs> is that somewhere we can all find ourselves? No, well, I did go, I did, I did a show where I ended up on an island before Findhorn. And again, that was after the book was in. They put me on an island and I was, Joanna Lumley had done it 35 years earlier and they left you alone for 10 days. But she had to have a crew. I could just have seven GoPros, so I really could be left alone. And again, it was curiosity to say what, they kept saying, what do you expect? I don't have a mind that expects anything. I don't know, that's why I'm doing it. What happens, they didn't mention the words cyclone or bugs that'll eat you alive. That wasn't in the contract, but that's what happened. Try peeing in a 70 mile an hour wind. So it was interesting what happened. I had no fear. I thought, surely, you know, at night with that howling thing, but people who have depression, we know what that weather condition feels like. So when you're in the real uh, tornado, it's nothing. It's interesting. And the guy who was the SAS guy said, I don't think a lot of men could have taken that. And I said, well, that's because I know darkness. So, you know, um, but I couldn't fend for myself. And I said, that's not what this is about. It's what happens to the mind when you're really left on your own. So that was curious. Findhorn is a community. I'm not sure if I'm really going there, but I, I wrote about it in a book I wrote before called, and now for the good news. Uh, and I, it's a hilarious, you know, it's very hippie and it's nuts, but they got me in the end. Cause I thought, well, at least there's no small talk. People are crazy, but also my neighbor invented solar paneling. So I thought I'd like to be around people where they don't ask me if I'm, how I am. I don't want to say fine anymore. You know, I might be, but it's a shit word. So I like the idea of a commune. I always did. You can either be with them or not be with them, but human, that's what makes you live longer. But we live now, even though we have people and life is so hard, it's so shallow. You know, you have a dinner party or whatever, and you want to get to the heart of it. So uh, people ask you how you're, how your kids are, where are they going to school? Like you, and you're asking where your kids, like you give a shit. But we live in a world where certain conversations are verboten. 
So just just to go off, I started something. Sorry, you're all in. I started something called Frazzled Cafe, which is where you. It's like based on AA, but it's for people who are frazzled. And it's every day you go online to frazzledcafe.org, and I do it every other Tuesday. It's been going for seven years, where it's got a format, but people are human with each other. And when you see on mine. 80 heads going, yeah, me too. There's no shame in what your story is. There's just no shame. And you can hear people going, oh, I said it. I said it. It's not even, you know, it's not self-indulgent. It's just, it's just love. It's just people going, all ages, all colors. So if you want to hear people unite, you have to be authentic. Cut the bullshit. And that's what is my baby, Frazzle Cafe. So if you can come on, come on. We have facilitators all day long, but I do it every other Tuesday at 5.30. And I think actually the wonderful thing about today, I haven't managed to get to everything, is that certainly cutting the bullshit, having those sorts of serious conversations is exactly what, what we have been doing here. And in fact, um, Adam Phillips, who's a psychoanalyst I was interviewing earlier, was saying, to your credit, that curiosity is the most important thing we can have, which is clearly what's driven just um, so much of your life. Just, just finally, in terms of your writing, I, I listened to Julia Samuel interviewing you for How To Academy when it came out, and she was asking you about the life lessons and the lessons in the book, and I think it is full of advice, but you said you actually really write for yourself. Is, is, is it all essentially a, a, a catharsis or a cathartic experience? Or are you thinking of rooms oh, of people who I don't think anybody's going to read it. Um, Do you really, even now? Well, I guess they are, and please buy it. <laughs> That's a good promo. And, um, but I, do, I write it because I'm so curious, where's the end of the journey? I don't have it planned. It's really, that's how my TV shows were, is that I did not know where it was gonna end. I researched the person, and then I threw away the paper, and then we just started a journey together, and I could stay with them, like OJ or Bette Midler, whatever. I could stay a week, and they didn't mind because they knew I didn't want the dirt. I don't want the dirt. I don't want to ask any question you've ever heard before, and so we'd play, and it would get dark, and it would get light, and people said, wasn't that grotesque how you just asked those direct questions? I said I was with them a week, you know, come on, we edited it. But you made, like Carrie Fisher, I was my dream, and she became my closest friend for 35 years. I wouldn't have met her if I didn't have a show, so show business does pay off if you want to have an interesting friend. And, um, oh, I just want to say the, the show of the book, I'm touring it in um, May and June, and then September, October, so come to see the show of um, I'm Not As Well As I Thought I Was. Well, there we go. That's a perfect place to finish off. And you will be, will you be signing yes, it? Yes, of course I'll be <laughs> signing it. Sorry, was that too desperate? <laughs> Sorry. He's woken up now. Um, so uh, it, I'm not as well as I thought I was. We'll be being signed by the brilliant uh, Ruby Wax. Thank you all. Thank you very, very much. It's wonderful to talk to you. And thank you, all of you. Wonderful audience and a brilliant day. Thank you. This episode starred Ruby Wax and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Nicole Wong and the show is edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like last week's interview with psychotherapist Adam Phillips, which was also recorded at How to Change Your Life. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>